You are listening to Word and Witness Part 2, a Bay City Church sermon series in the book of John. For more audio and video resources, visit baycity.church. So we've been uh, in a series called Word and Witness, uh, which is a series in the book of John. And if you are interested, by chance, in part one, we did chapters one through four last fall. And so you can actually listen to those at our website or clicking through on the Bay City SF info site. Um, but we're starting kind of a part two, and so we're taking a couple falls in a row to go through this entire book of John because it's a big book and we want to make sure we get everything. So this week we find ourselves in John chapter 5, verse 19. If, would you guys join me in praying? Let's pray over this and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, again, thank you so much for an opportunity to share your word. Lord, it's, it's not lost on me the privilege it is to open the scriptures and to, and to preach and to and to um, hopefully communicate some, some of the Holy Spirit's power in this, Lord God, that there are people in here that uh, want to know you and want to know more about you. And then there are folks here that, man, they don't know a lot about you at all, Lord. So I do pray for open hearts and minds that we might um, be interested of what you have to say here today. And uh, I do pray that uh, the Holy Spirit is what's communicated here. And uh, less of me and more Jesus in your son's name. Amen. So let's talk about dating apps real quick uh, before we get started. Uh, 7,500 dating apps. Did you know how, that's how many there is? Don't ask, some of you are like, I'm on all of them, okay? <laughs> some of you are on all of them. Christian Mingle even, right? Like, I don't know what you're on, but there's 7,500 of these apps. That's, that's a ton of apps. It's crazy. In fact, I was sitting at coffee with a, a couple recently who had just, maybe some of you are, are maybe met online. I was sitting with a couple. They had just met online pretty recently, and uh, they weren't super convinced it was going to last. I'll be honest with you. I was uh, confused, but uh, they weren't super convinced. The reason why is because they've been on so many of these dates. They've connected for so long. I don't know if you've done this at all, but uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of people have multiple relationships through these apps, right? And sometimes they'll last a couple weeks, sometimes three weeks, sometimes four weeks. Do you know how many people are on dating apps actively using them right now? 49 million Americans. 49 million Americans across these apps. That is a ton. And that's not counting duplicate profiles. That is a lot. Okay, some of you guys have like burner, the Tinder accounts, like just in case, you know what I mean? Use slightly different pictures, try, you know, just trying to increase your odds. I get it. I understand. How many, how many uh, relationships committed today have begun online? Do you know? Less than 1% in 2007. Do you know how many now? 20% have began online. One-fifth of all committed relationships, committed, okay, relationships have begun online. That is a ton. And yet, let's be honest, a lot of these relationships, they feel kind of hollow, don't they? You've been in an online dating relationship. Sometimes they don't really last. You're kind of like, you know, there's a, a thing called Kinder now, which is uh, people are now getting on Tinder to go out to dinner. They call it Kinder because they go to the kitchens and they eat. It's crazy. They're, they're kind of hollow relationships, right? You go into these relationships, maybe you go out to dinner, maybe you last for a couple weeks, and then you break it off pretty soon. What, am I, am I crazy? Are you guys, are you guys all acting flabbergasted like this? I've never seen this before. Look, <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. You've been on multiple dates on Tinder and whatever. I've been married for 10 years. I don't know the names, okay? <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. But these are hollow relationships, and I'll prove it to you. 88% of people who use the apps have used it for two or more relationships, committed relationships. So they don't last very long. You might be in a committed relationship through a dating app for three months, and then you're 88% as likely to use the same app for another committed relationship. Furthermore, I'll show you just how hollow these relationships are. 48% of all online dating relationships end via email. I mean, not even the dignity of a text. 
or a snap. You emailed them. You went professional, used your work email, to whom it may concern. You know, <laughs> you broke up with them like that. That is brutal. These relationships lack that power, right? Why are they so hollow? They're hollow because we haven't given these people authority and power over us yet. See, I've been married long enough to know that the longer you're married, the more authority and power that person has amongst you. They, they have, they, their decisions carry more weight, right? They, their decisions, their thinking carries more weight in your life. If you're dating someone for a week and they say, I don't like Chinese food, you might be like, oh, well, I do like Chinese food. Let's get it anyway, right? Or something like that. The relationships are a little less, a little less committed, but the longer you're married, the more it matters. Where do you move? What job do you get? What, what, what schools are nearby? All of a sudden, the relationship carries more weight and more authority. Now, some of you have met online. When you started meeting online, maybe it was a couple quick test messages and things like that here, here and there, but eventually you had the conversation where it was like, okay, it's probably time for you to get off the app. Like, I, I, feel, like, I feel like we've been dating three months and you're still on there, why, right? Now all of a sudden you've gotta make a decision because the relationship's beginning to carry more weight and authority. It's coming now, right? There's more power, more authority behind your relationship. The longer you date them, the more power they have. And not just power in the relationship, power over your emotions. Now, think about it. If, if someone's unfaithful to you in the first week, it sucks. But if they're unfaithful to you after 15 years of marriage, it destroys your life. More and more and more weight and authority is carried over in these relationships. We're giving over them power to our emotions, and we're giving them over power to our well-being. This happens. We're continually, progressively giving over more weight, more power, more authority. And as a result, they can affect us more. So we go into the dumps every time a bad thing happens. They have more authority over us. Now, Miki uh, Koshten, she's a PhD. She leads workshops over pow about power and authority around the country. And she said something really interesting. She says this about power and authority. Almost invariably, she found that people have a deeply suspicious relationship with power and authority. Do you feel like you're suspicious of power and authority, particularly in this day and age? Do you feel that? If someone immediately has power and authority, you get a little suspicious of them, don't you? No one's here suspicious of our executive branch of our government. I mean, it's San Francisco. Well, of, course we, of course you are, right? It just is what it is. The more power and the more authority people have, the more deeply suspicious we all have. We have a weird relationship with it. And maybe if that's not you, that's just the overarching feel about people. And here's why. People, with uh, people associate authority and the power that comes with it with two things. A lack of care for other people and top-down unilateral decision-making. Now, you don't think this about maybe your boss at work or maybe your parents? They make top-down decisions. I'm not included, especially if you're millennial. You're like, I want to be included. I want to, I want to feel like I'm a part of the team. Top-down, unilateral decision-making, a lack of care for others, power over relationships. Now, Dr. Koshten, she comes to this conclusion. She says, we as humans accept in our minds that the only possible responses to authority are either to submit or to rebel. Do you feel like that? I gotta submit to my boss, or I gotta rebel against him. Relationship has more power, I'm gonna submit, or I'm gonna rebel. And yeah, maybe you'll find areas of compromise, but you're gonna rebel or you're gonna submit. We are weary of submitting to people too, because we feel like we'll be taken advantage of, and that's why we don't wanna do it, right? Maybe we've been hurt by them in the past. And so, if we are afraid of submitting, we challenge authority. 
We challenge people who are in power, and we say, who are you to make that decision? Who are you to uh, make that choice about who's working for you? Who are you to do that in this relationship? Who are you? And we'll wait, and we'll, try to, we'll wait till they prove themselves to be a worthy authority of us finding submission. And we do this in our dating relationships as well. We challenge authority. We're afraid of authority, and sometimes we're afraid of the authority and we suffer, in, suffer internally too because we think that maybe subliminally we're less than that person. Maybe they'll think less of me. And so when we challenge our authorities, we, we're a little bit nervous. We're a little afraid. You ever go talk to your boss and you, you just disagree with something they did and you go in there and you're just a little bit nervous, a little, your voice is crackling just a little bit, just a tiny bit. You're nervous because wonder if you're not heard. Wonder if you're not cared for. Wonder if they disrespect you. Wonder if... They call, what if they call you out for being the person you think you are lesser than? What if they do that? So how do we cope with this? Oftentimes, we'll dehumanize the person who's in power. Because if we dehumanize the person that's in power, then we don't have to deal with the emotions of hurting a person. We're just dealing with an institution. So we'll say, ah, it's the, it's the whole company, and it starts at the top. It's the snake at the top. Well, that snake has a family and a wife or a husband, and children and they go to the park and they cry and they're sad but we dehumanize them we dehumanize them and it's very american of us to challenge that authority and we do it so we can cope with the idea that authority and power might be over us just for a short time and you know what weirdly enough in this exact passage they're in the exact same boat because the ancient israelites have been uh, wandering through deserts, they've been in exile, and they've had this authority, God the Father, over them for years. And then this guy shows up, and he shows up performing miracles and doing things that seemingly on paper look the exact opposite of what God uh, the Father would do. And so what do they do? They challenge his authority. They're not gonna submit. That would be crazy. They're gonna challenge it. And you know how they're gonna do that to cope with the emotions of doing it? They're gonna have to dehumanize him. They're going to have to make like he's some evil guy. And so this guy pops up. They don't trust him. And they're skeptical at best. And at worst, they're murderously jealous. And that's where we find ourselves. And why are they jealous? Well, two weeks ago, we studied the story of Jesus healing a guy's legs who had been an invalid for 38 years. He healed him and he restored him to walking. And he did it on the Sabbath, which if you were there a couple weeks ago, you know is a day you don't do anything if you're an ancient Israelite. And so they were mad. Look at verse 18 with me. Just a recap, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That's Jesus, the guy we're talking about. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, they were mad about that, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this guy, Jesus, shows up, and he challenges their current authorities and establishes himself as his own authority. And so what do they do as being human beings? They get afraid, they get nervous, and they either submit or they rebel because they don't know what to do. And the Pharisees, these, these uh, religious leaders, they decide they're going to rebel against this authority, okay? And what's crazy about this is like oftentimes we use the Pharisees as this example to kind of go, are you kidding me? These religious people didn't get it right. We often do the same thing, so don't we? Almost all the time. We often distrust Jesus' authority too. We often do the same things. Well, even if you even if you're a, a, call yourself a believer in Jesus or maybe a Christian, you actually find yourself distrusting him. Think about it. Put yourselves in the Pharisees' shoes for a second. They've been messing up a lot 
I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is basically a story about them ruining everything. Like, how would you like that book to be written about your family? Like, yep, here's the story. You shouldn't have called it the Old Testament. You should just call it, they ruined everything. Because that's exactly what's happening. God creates everything, they ruin it. God makes a way for them to be in relationship with them, they ruin it. God makes another way for them to be in relationship, they ruin it. They keep ruining it. And so finally, they think, they settled on a way for them to be in a good relationship with God if they just meticulously follow every single little rule that God creates then God will love them, they'll be in a good relationship, let's not mess this up, we've messed this up a lot. And so there's this big concept, the law, that if they follow these 600 plus laws and they do it properly, then they'll be in a good relationship with God. They're just trying to make things right. They're trying to do it perfectly. And then Jesus shows up, and Jesus is God, and they lack trust. They're afraid. They're deeply, deeply afraid. They've been burned in the past. Their ancestors have ruined their relationship with God, and they're fearful. Have you ever thought about that? We always think about the Pharisees as angry, evil, domineering, and yes, many of them were. But couldn't you see how they might be afraid of messing this up to the point where they're just so proud about themselves? Have you ever been burned by someone you love or care about? Has anybody in your life that you deeply love, maybe a relationship, maybe it's a romantic relationship, maybe it's a family member or best friend or something like that, or even a boss, a trusted associate, something like that, have they ever hurt you so badly that you just felt burning, you just felt icky inside? Nobody? I'm the only one that's had people. Okay. So you all get it, right? We've all been there. It sucks. How does that make you feel? It sucks. You eat a lot of ice cream, keep, keep Ben and Jerry's in business or salt and straw here in the city because we don't go to the corporate ice cream. Ridiculous. Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. You've been burned, and it's hard. Think about the Pharisees. They've had their family and friends do the same thing constantly, ruin the Sabbath, build idols in the name of other gods. We can't mess this up. Let's focus on him. We've got to do it. They're afraid. What was it like for you to trust after that person hurt you? How long did it take you for you to begin to trust again after that person hurt you? Maybe you're in that right now. Maybe you're in a place where you can't trust anybody. All right, opposite question. Have you ever been in a relationship where you burned someone you love and cared about? Have you ever been there where you've harmed somebody you love and you care about? How did that feel? What was their reaction? Are you still in a relationship with them? Are they still your family? Are you still close? It's incredibly difficult and incredibly hard. We want to start to believe again. How long do you think it took that person to start to trust again? Trust you, really trust you. A long time, right? We want to believe, but I'm telling you right now that if you've been there and you've been hurt, you know that there's at least a small period of time where you feel like the only person you could trust is yourself. I just don't know if I can trust anybody anymore. I've been harmed too many times. Maybe there's like one other person, but everybody else, man, I just don't know. Think about this. The Pharisees might be there in this spot. They've given over power to their leaders, their kings, their judges, and they've been harmed. They just feel like they're taking it into their own hands and they're going to deliver. But what if there was authority that didn't harm you? Unlike some of us that have harmed people and unlike some of us who have been harmed by others, I wonder if there was a power and authority person that didn't harm you, that always you knew had your back 100%, that you knew there was no chance that they would ever fail you. There was no chance they would ever leave you at the altar. 
This person was going to be there, and they were going to love you, and they were going to care for you no matter what. This person is not interested in your destruction. They're only interested in your well-being. What if that person existed? That'd be crazy, right? What if our adverse reaction to authority was a defense mechanism from being hurt from others? What if our adverse reaction to authority and to other, is a defense mechanism from being hurt by the world? What if the reason we distrust so much is because we've been harmed, we've left ourselves open? What if that's the case? What if you're not angry with God, maybe you're just afraid he's gonna hurt you? What if you're not actually disbelieving in God, you just are afraid that if he's real, there's a chance he could just let you down? What if that's the case? Maybe you've subliminally been treating God like you treat others' authorities in your life that have hurt you. I just don't know. I've got to hold you out here for a second. I just, uh, maybe, but we'll get there. I mean, uh, I don't know. I've been, I've been burned before. Maybe that's where the Pharisees are at. Well, here's the good news. Unlike other authorities, Jesus' authority can be fully trusted. Now, I know you don't all believe that. I know you don't all believe that yet. This may be hard to believe, but where other authorities, bosses, parents, lovers have hurt you, Jesus will not hurt you. He will not hurt you in these ways. Where you've been radically abused and harmed by other people, Jesus will not do that. And not only that, Jesus isn't going to just tell you, he's actually going to show you. He wants to prove it out. Listen, look at verse 19. This is how Jesus responds to these hurting, angry Pharisees. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all, shows that, shows him all that he himself is doing. Now the religious people are mad at Jesus because they thought Jesus was contradicting God. So God the Father, their version of him is their authority. Jesus is, call, is, is going against that. He's doing things on the Sabbath, so this Jesus needs to go. Jesus here is trying to prove it out. He's trying to say, actually, guys, everything that the Father does, I do. Everything you think the Father has been doing from history, I have been the one doing it. You see, the Father and I have the same beating heart. We're together in this. And so Jesus is linking up with their, with their supposed authority and saying, actually, the authority that you care about so much, I'm actually that person. He's trying to state a case for them, that actually, I love you as much as this God the Father supposedly loves you. And all the ways you think he's make a, made a way for you to be in relationship by following this law, he's made a better way for you to be in relationship with him through me. You get what I'm saying? Jesus is trying to prove it. You think I'm a contradiction to the Father, but we're the same. The Pharisees saw this giant contradiction, Jesus and God, which is crazy to think about reading it later, 2,000 years later, but put yourself in, that, in those shoes. I mean, a homeless guy shows up, and he's claiming to be like incarnate version of Yahweh, the Lord, sovereign God of the universe, that knows Moses and Abraham and David, really? I mean, I get, I get where they're coming from, and still Jesus delivers it in such a calm, perfect way for them to try to understand and he's trying to get them to get it. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he is, himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show that you may marvel. You see, Jesus now is about to say, okay, I said it, but I'm gonna prove it. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, like I just mentioned, Jesus heals a guy who had been 
had no leg or hadn't been able to use his legs for 38 years. That's pretty good proof that something's at least special about this guy. But he's actually going to prove it even further. So this verse 20 is really, really important for actually understanding the character of Jesus. Greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. So he's saying that God the Father is going to show Jesus a way to prove out his own divinity. And do you have a guess as to what you think this would be? He is going, you think it's cool that he redeems people's legs. Wait till he redeems the world. That's his plan. See, his plan is not that he's going to physically heal people. He's going to also spiritually heal them. He's not going to just heal them in this life. He's going to heal them for the next life. Jesus is going to up the ante. You thought this was cool. This is just, a, a, this is just an appetizer to what I've got, got coming. This is way bigger, way more powerful. Listen, there are many authorities in the world today. I mean, some of us love our authorities, sexual authorities, political authorities, cultural authorities, but none of them have proven themselves like Jesus' authority has proven itself. All of our authorities are speculative at best. Maybe they can make change. But Jesus is saying, I have made change and I will make change further. Imagine if a guy like Jesus ran for president and he stood up and he just went, your legs are healed. Pretty good, right? Like, president, vote for me, right? Pretty simple. Like everyone else gets up with their political authority and what do they do? They speculate on how they might be able to make things better. Jesus doesn't speculate, he revelates. Jesus reveals himself to the world, and as he does that, people change. It's pretty simple. And so how does he change people? He changes people physically, but he also changes people spiritually. And this is where we can find ourselves in this story. That yes, Jesus repeatedly predicts his own death, he heals people, he, brings, uh, he feeds lots of people all at once with a, a couple of fish and some bread. He does all of these things, but the greatest power will be found in his weakness when he dies on the cross and redeems spiritually the world through that. That's powerful. No other authority that you have, I can assure you, is willing to sign on the dotted, blind, dotted line in blood for you. None of them. Even your own spouse, while they say they might die for you, none of them can bring spiritual change while they do it. Jesus can do that. He is willing to sign on the dotted line in his own blood, and he has. This is way more potent than any other authority. All other authority, speculation. Jesus, revelation. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son. Now, Jesus here claims to fully represent God here on earth for his judgment and for giving life. This is problematic for the Pharisees. Problematic. Because this is completely new. Nothing in antiquity has ever, there's never been a human being say this sort of things. There's always been a nebulous God maybe, uh, but there's never been a human being that could say such things. He says, the son gives life to whom he will. What does this mean? Exactly what it says. Jesus Christ will grant life, spiritual life, spiritual change to whom he chooses. Now, I'm not sure what you feel like, again, the most important thing or authority is in your life, but, uh, or the thing you trust the most, but does this person or that thing promise you spiritual, authentic change? Does it do that? Can your president, can your spiritual zeitgeist, can your boss, can your work, can your money, can your 401k, can your family, can your perfect children, can they do that for you? None of them can. Jesus can. And he promises it and he does it. Do those things promise those things? Yeah, you could grow. 
Of course you can grow on your own. You, but with Jesus, you can defeat things you never could. You see, Jesus doesn't make our, uh, the weird idea behind the afterlife in American evangelicalism is weird. Here's what it is, and you've heard it. Um, all you do is go to a camp. In that camp, there will be a guy, and he'll say some stuff about Jesus. You walk up to the front of the stage, and you accept Christ into your life, um, and, and then you go back, and now you're in, when you die, you go to heaven. And then you start listening to slightly worse music, and uh, you wear buttons, and you tuck your shirt in, and life's good. Like, that's Christianity. But that's actually, that's actually maybe a small version of Christianity, but that's not the total picture. You see, Christianity isn't fundamentally only about when you die, you go to heaven. Jesus Christ died so that people might grow in eternity, but that they might grow now too. You see, Jesus wasn't just dying to send people to heaven. Jesus Christ is actually making this world better now. When Jesus died, he's ushering in something called the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is bringing a new kingdom. Where all of the Old Testament kings failed, the New Testament Jesus king, he won't fail. The kingdoms they should have brought, Jesus is going to bring. And so, for those who turn to become Christians, we grow spiritually, and we become more sanctified. And yes, we do, we do things that we don't do anymore. We change, and we help other people change. And that's all by the power of God's power. And we slowly change, and that slowly brings forward this kingdom that's coming. Jesus didn't just die so we go to heaven. He died so he could bring heaven to earth. And he's going to do that. And so if you believe that, I love you, that's only half of the truth. The truth is, yes, when you die, you get to be with Jesus, but Jesus is going to bring heaven here, and he's going to redeem, renew, and restore the world for all time. This is what's cool, is we're actually, when we read Jesus' words, he's trying to tell, he's trying to tell these really simple people, like, think about it, like any of you have kids, you ever sit and talk with your kids about something, you have to kind of really bring it down for them, okay? So they get it, especially like if you have a two or three-year-old, because they don't, they can hear you, but they don't really get it. And so you have to do that. Actually, one theologian, Martin Luther, he calls that baby talk, that God actually gets down on his knee and he talks to us and says, the son is going to give life to whom believes him. And we go, so I work for your love. No, no, no. The son will give life to who believes. You're like, okay, so I work? No. Like, and God's trying to explain this to us. And we're like, okay. And then we just hit our head in the wall and cry. Like, that's, that's our lives to God. And God's trying to explain this so simply to us. When you accept Jesus, when Jesus comes into your life that he wants to bring this to you, you, have, you get power for eternal change, but spiritual change now. Okay? Verse 23. All that honor the Son, just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Okay, so this is for the Pharisees here, because the Pharisees, the Pharisees believe they got the God the Father down. And, and Jesus is trying to say, uh, hold on a second. If you don't believe me, you don't believe him. And so this is what makes them really angry because now their authority is being challenged, at least what they thought their authority was challenging. Now, it's possible that many of us in here actually may think the same things. Maybe even you feel like, ah, I'm a Christian, or maybe you don't, but you feel like, I trust a God, I trust in God. But when the rubber meets the road, when something in your life happens, a challenge, a death, a, a depression, an anxiety, when the rubber beats the road, our trust sometimes isn't in God, it's in something else. And you've been there. You can cognitively believe in God, but when, when a, a conflict happens or when there's pressure on your life, you go to something else instead of him. Have you ever done that? 
Have you done that? When, when maybe there's pressure at work and you've got this opportunity to, to, take a, to take a promotion at a really awesome job, but you know this would require you uprooting yourself from a community that you've built and friendships and just people that you've been sharing the gospel for. And maybe you decide, you know what, I'm not even going to consider what God thinks. I'm just going to take the promotion. Maybe you should consider what Jesus thinks. Or maybe you're like, I know this relationship isn't healthy for me. I know I'm doing things I shouldn't be doing in the relationship, but you know what? It feels good. I enjoy it, and so I'm just going to do it. I believe in Jesus, but when rubber meets the road, I didn't play it out. It's the same thing happening here. The Pharisees believed in God the Father, but when things got pressureful, when they got hard and got difficult, they chose something over Jesus. Money, career, sex, relationships, partners, finance, whatever it is, they've chosen it over Jesus. Now, all people are sinners, but I don't think necessarily that every single person is maliciously, intentionally trying to use the word and sin against people. They're walking around going, I'm going to steal. I'm going to. Now, of course, there are people that are doing that, but all of those people that aren't, that, that aren't active thieves and murderers and adulterers, those things, still do sin. And I don't think people are actually doing it maliciously or intentionally. They actually probably just want change. You probably just want a better life. You probably just want more pleasure or more comfort. And you're actually just going to things, to going to other things instead of God. And you're actually getting a really, I don't know, uh, what is it called, generic version of, of what you think you're getting? You're getting a generic comfort, you know? It's like you get Kraft mac and cheese or you get like, you know, the Safeway brand. You know, it's like, it's not the same, right? Get the Kraft. <laughs> no, don't, just ignore that. Um, you get it. I don't eat it. My kids love it. But we want other things. We believe in Jesus, but we go to those things. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. We go to them. But here's the thing. Spiritual change without Jesus is really complicated because it's really hard. You gotta try to change yourself. But with Jesus, the process for spiritual change is actually very simple. The process for spiritual change is really simple. It's not complicated. So Jesus gives us the deep secret to all of the meaning of life and how we change. He gives us this powerful, potent, thing that we should all be in all of our coffee cups, right? Like verse 24, look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, by the way, like I always say, when he says truly, truly, he means pay attention. I'm about to say something incredibly important, okay? When he says that, he, this is his emphasis. This is his exclamation point. He says, I say to you, whoever hears my word, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Yeah, was that complicated? Was that over your head? Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's it. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. That's it. You're asking, like, what is the afterlife? What does it all mean? Like, how do I get there? Well, here it is. This guy who heals people for a living says, if you believe the guy that told me to do all this, you're in. And people are like, what? Like, how? No, that's it. Believe him who sent me, God the Father. That's it. If you hear the call of Jesus on your life today and he calls you to radical obedience and friendship with God, you are saved even in this moment. That's the potency. There's no 10 steps. There's no 50 steps. There's no blog post you need to read or any sort of, there's no, there's no on-ramp. This is it. You can, in this moment, walk in eternal freedom with God, because it's simple. It's very simple. We are spiritually dead without God. Jesus, uh, Ephesians 2 says that we 
are dead in our trespasses and sins. We all sin, but Jesus in his loving, rich, in mercy, his grace, he makes us alive in himself. He makes us alive. We go from death to life. Simple. And I just want to read, I kind of emphasize the back end of verse 24. I think I'm going to put it up here. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's not an accident. You think that was a typo? All these manuscripts, all these ancient manuscripts, there's a lot, there's all sorts of different variations and punctuation and things like this. This tense is not a mistake. Some modern translations will actually change this because they don't understand what the ancient manuscripts meant. That actually you've passed from death to life. What does that mean? That means when you pass from death to life, you've passed from death to life. Some of you are in here thinking that, man, I haven't had a good faith walk with the Lord recently. I'm, I'm, I'm upset with that. I'm, I'm devastated. I feel broken by that. I, I don't know what to do next. I feel like maybe I'll just wear a scarlet letter on my chest. I'm done. Not true. You, if you've passed from death to life, you've passed from death to life. If the Jesus Christ has walked you across the chasm between uh, death and life, you are already through. You know, there's no going back. There's not like flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop with your faith. Okay? That should be a comfort to all of us. It's done, it's permanent, it's simple. If we truly believe in the word of Christ, trust in him who sent us, that Jesus has come into the world to save human beings by sacrificing himself and us uh, inheriting his righteousness, then at this very moment we have everlasting life. There is no debate, there is no gray area. Now for those that think maybe your faith was once on fire, it's now a fraud, I have news for you. If your deepest desire is for Jesus, you are part of this everlasting conversation, okay? This also means you have access to spiritual change, not just an eternity. We already talked about that. Now, some people will say it's really, this is too easy. I get it. I understand, especially like, you know, I used to work at a Catholic school. If you were from Catholic background, I understand what you're talking about. If you grew up uh, as a functional Pharisee like me, pointing out everyone's wrongs, you're like, no, too easy. I get it. But listen, look at Romans 10, not verse 9 and 10. This is even simpler. Remember, baby talk. Baby talk. Look it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Simple. Simple. If you, in your deepest heart, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose three days later, and that in dying on that cross, that he was able to take your sin from your life, grant you his perfect record, then you are saved right now in this moment. You have access to that should you so choose. Okay? It's simple. Now, it's simple for us, but for Jesus, a little, little less simple, right? I mean, he had to be flogged and beaten and murdered, not as simple. For us, very simple. It cost us nothing, but it cost God everything. It cost him everything, okay? Now, sometimes when Christians make this statement, like whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life, they're kind of seen as like narrow-minded, you know? Uh, maybe some of you feel that way. I know I felt that way when I wasn't a Christian. I feel like that was just narrow-minded. Well, me and my wife used to uh, live in Chicago for a while, and we lived in the third worst Chicago storm in history. Um, yeah, this is probably nine years ago now. 
And uh, I remember all the people boarding up their windows for the storms, right? Because this is February in Chicago. I mean, it was pandemonium. You couldn't go outside. It looked like the end of days. There were cars abandoned all over the place. But people are boarding up their windows like crazy. And I'm from California. So I'm like, what? Are they remodeling? Like, what's going on over there, you know? If my neighbor looks at me and says, hey, I think you need to board up your windows. A storm's coming. I don't go, hey, that's really awfully narrow-minded of you that you would tell me I need to board up my windows. The neighbor would go, hey man, a storm's coming whether you board your windows up or not. I'm just trying to help you, okay? The same is true here, okay? You can, you can call it me narrow-minded personally, that's okay. I still love you, I still wanna have coffee with you and talk to you about Jesus. But I'm telling you right now that Jesus Christ is coming. It says that the God has given the judgment over to the Son. He is coming and he's trying to move people from death to life. You can board your windows up if you want to but I implore you that you should. Okay, spiritual change is very simple, but as you may know, the process for spiritual change is not easy. Because I explained a lot of stuff right there. It's not easy. Process for spiritual change is simple, but the process for spiritual change is not easy. Now, if you've been walking along with Jesus for any length of time, you'd probably know um, that life gets, you hit speed bumps. You ever hit, you ever hit speed bumps on, the, on your faith walk? Maybe you've been trying to live a specific life and you've stumbled. Anybody? Nobody? Perfect. Do you feel like you're in like a downturn right now? Some of us feel, maybe feel like, man, I feel like I'm like, I'm in a recession. Like this feels like that in my life. Well, I do have a graph of, can you put up the graph? Here it is. This is the stock market from 1900, which they had back then. Some of you already know that. From 1900 to today, the stock market. This is the stock market. Now, in 1930, things were pretty rough. I mean, look at that. Like, this is 1930 here. Like, there's no space on the graph to go any lower than 1930. Some of you feel like I'm in 1930 today, okay? I get it. I understand. But it's weird because as I'm studying the stock market, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get into finance and trying to learn. I'm starting to see kind of like this, the pattern of the stock market. And this is its entire history. So you can see that if you put money in in 1900, you've got a lot more money now, right? That's pretty obvious. Your mom wasn't lying to you when she told you that. Okay, it's actually true. You put money away and it's gonna go up and yeah, it might go down and up and it kind of looks like this big winding road. But what's interesting, you see that if it, at the bottom it started one place and now it's here. The same is true in your faith. I, I don't wanna be uh, like trivial with this, but it's exact, an exact analogy. You, when, you met, when you meet Christ, you start here at the bottom. And guess what's gonna happen? You're gonna slowly, slowly grow in your faith. But what's gonna happen? You're gonna hit speed bumps, you're gonna go down. You're gonna get, get in some, some bear markets and you're gonna stumble. Some of you know this is 100% true in your life, isn't it? That you're not, it's not just a straight up, directly proportional graph across the road. You haven't just per, grown uh, symmetrically your entire life in every single area. You know that you fall, maybe sexually, you fall financially, you fall in judgment of others, in emotions with anger, and bouts of depression, and hate towards other people, but you slowly, slowly go. Now, I love Dave Ramsey. You guys like Dave Ramsey? No? Nobody? Yeah, oh, somebody. Dead is dumb, cash is king. But, uh, yeah, he says that. We'll, we'll edit that out of the video. Uh, Dave Ramsey has this really interesting phrase. He tells people that are afraid of the stock market. He says the only people that get hurt off the stock are, uh, when they buy in the stock market, the only people that get hurt are people that sell when, in a downturn. In other words, the only people that get hurt on a roller coaster are the people that jump off while it's riding. You know what I'm saying? You ever go on a roller coaster and you're like, you're freaking out on the way down? 
but you're fine at the end, right? Most of us. But if you jumped off in the middle, you're like, oh, this is too much for me. I'm out. <laughs> What's going to happen? Like, like you're going you're gonna to get hurt, okay? The same is true here in your faith. The market is always going to correct itself. You see, Jesus, for those that have passed from death to life, Jesus always corrects the market. As you grow in your faith, you are always going to experience downturns because sin is existent. It is real. You are a sinner by nature, by choice. But Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is growing in you, and so he's always going to correct the market. You may feel like, I need to jump off this faith. I, I, I don't think, I, I think I'm done with the Christian faith. This is just too much for me. You know, bad things have been happening, and I'm telling you right now, the only people that get hurt on a roller coaster are the ones that jump off. You may hit the pavement in, in your bailing out of a faith that was always going to correct for you. You may be tempted to bail, but Jesus promises when he fails, when we fail, he will correct. If you jump, it will get worse. So my advice to you, don't quit. Don't quit. You may feel like you're in a downturn right now. Don't quit. Keep pushing through. The market is going to correct. Be in relationships with people that have your back and care about your best and get in a biblical community that they can point you towards the goodness of Jesus. Because Jesus is the only thing that's going to correct the market. These other authorities we have, they may feel good for a while. It may artificially inflate our stock, but ultimately they will reveal themselves. Jesus corrects the market. Don't quit. But I have to let you know as well that at the end of all the stocks, like this, this text says that Jesus is going to look and say, and they're going to see who's got What? He's going to judge. It says that. Look at verse 27. He has given him authority. God the Father has given Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now there's too much there to unpack totally, but I will say this. Jesus will judge all humans. Most of us think God is this evil guy in the sky puppeteering everybody, and Jesus is like a humble, guitar-playing hippie who's all good, and everyone likes him. That's true, he is. I don't know if he plays the guitar, but he's, he's cool. But he will judge. He will judge. He judges all humans. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when, the all, when all those or all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now remember what I said about authority. Many people are going to hear this and they're going to rebel or they're going to submit. Rebel or submit, and you may get fearful because you don't know and you're not sure if you can trust this. And you're saying in your mind, you're gonna read this and go, see if I don't improve, if I don't get better in the stock market, if I don't force myself, then I'm gonna be judged, right? Because it says, those who have done good to the resurrection and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment. And you're nervous, you're going, oh, wait a second, I thought I was free, but now all of a sudden I gotta work. But God already gave us a really awesome clue earlier. It's a really, he already gave us a clue on how this goes. And so I'm going to bring you back to verse 24 and read the baby talk to us again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He gave us a clue. So when you believe in Jesus, two things happen. You adopt Jesus' perfect record before him, and as you're judged, you go in. 
Because if you believe in Jesus, you wear his cloak. That's good. And the second thing that happens is that you get actual power and desire to grow now. So it's not like you're some sort of like get out of jail free card and you're wearing Jesus mink around and you're good. It's that you actually care and want to change now. But even if you begin to slide in your stock market, Jesus always corrects the market. When you stand before Jesus at the end, for those who believe in his name have passed from death to life. That means you, okay? Our skepticism immediately distrusts him, though, because we like, I mean, we, we immediately dislike power. I mean, that's a power play. I mean, I, I'm from San Francisco. I don't know if I like that. But our power oftentimes leads us to living outside of God's will and in his judgment. And when you jump off the roller coaster, the harness can no longer protect you. You're done. Friends, if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and you put your faith in him as the savior of the universe, not only can you be saved, you will be saved. And you will pass from death to life. Anybody is included in that, should they so choose. Let's pray.